Prestige listeners, it's Derek. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host uh, and partner, Danny Bessner. I mean that in the platonic sense. Wow, uh, friend, Derek. I guess I haven't gotten up to that well, level yet, listeners. Yeah, so, we're okay, we're, we're, we're working on that. On that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're very lucky to be joined this week uh, by uh, two uh, excellent scholars who will be able to talk to us about the situation in West Africa and the Sahel specifically. We're going to be talking about Mali and Burkina Faso. Uh, we're joined by Laman Keita, a PhD candidate in political science at Northwestern University, uh, and Alex Thurston, assistant professor of political science at the University of Cincinnati and author of uh, books such as Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel, Local Politics and Rebel Groups, uh, and Boko Haram, the history of an African jihadist movement. Uh, gentlemen, thank you both for coming on the program. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So let's dig into it. This is a, a sh- uh, an episode that's been uh, several months in the making, actually. There was that period in, uh, I guess, early 2022, where there had been coups in Mali, in Guinea, in Chad, in Burkina Faso, within the space of less than a year. Uh, and my idea was basically to have the two of you on and just say, what is going on here? And have you talked for 60 minutes about uh, everything that's going on? I, I want to not, I don't think we're spending any time on Chad or Guinea because those coups are a little uh, kind of esoteric or, or uh, you know, kind of the causes are, are more uh, localized to those countries. But there are a lot of things in common, I think, uh, specifically the role of jihadists. Uh, the jihadist conflicts in what's happening in Mali and Burkina Faso. Uh, I guess first I'd like to get you both to comment on where you see things standing right now in terms of uh, what the, the juntas in both countries are doing, whether there is a transition, a real transition uh, back to some sort of democratic or civilian-based rule, or if things are uh, kind of frozen. And, and you can, you know, whichever one of you wants to take that first, go feel free. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, as you said, Derek, I mean, the you know, there's there's been a lot of talk about coup contagion in Africa, right? And a sense that all these coups are interconnected, or one could say that they're totally all, you know, as you were saying, esoteric and idiosyncratic. I think, I think, as you said, the closest relationship is probably between the Mali and Burkina Faso coups, and you know, two countries that border one another that had a lot of similar dynamics, and where I think the the you know officers within the militaries have watched one another. I think also there were similarities between the figures who were overthrown, right? So you had second term incumbents who had come in after, you know, serious changes and disruptions in their countries when hopes had been high and then they just hadn't lived up to those hopes at all. You know, so in Mali, there had been a rebellion in 2012, a coup that year, a French intervention in 2013, and then a process that brought Ibrahim Boubacar Keita to power for, for two terms or sort of one and a half terms. Um, and then there had been just a groundswell of, of protest in the summer of 2020, and then the military stepped in and overthrew him. Um, and that protest had reflected serious dissatisfaction with his um, his perceived corruption, his you know overreach in the electoral arena, um, and his failure to bring security. And of course, I mean, I shouldn't 
personalize it maybe so much because, I mean, I think one should say being president of Mali, being president of Burkina Faso, you know, two of the hardest jobs in the world, um, very limited resources, very difficult to bring, you know, stability. But there had been this dissatisfaction with him. In Burkina, you had a, a massive revolution in 2014 that had overthrown the longstanding dictator of the country, Blas Kapore. Um, similarly, very high hopes when when Kabore, the president, came in in 2015, um, and then he was reelected. But the security situation was degrading and degrading, you know, virtually through his entire presidency. Uh, and then he was overthrown in, in January 22. And then Burkina has actually suffered a second coup in, in September of this year. So, you know, a really um, hectic and fraught environment. In terms of the transitions, yeah, I mean, I think that in Mali in particular, but in, in both countries, there has been a lot of contestation over the length of the transition. I think that it is fairly likely that the planned transition dates in, in 2024 will slip and that there will be that, that the juntas will try to hang on, especially in Mali, but maybe in Burkina as well, will try to hang on to power past the sort of deadlines. Um, so I think really we're looking at, you know, multiple years of of political instability, and then that's all against the backdrop of, of these serious, serious insurgencies. Uh, uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, if I look at the two countries, and Mali and Burkina, I, it reminds me of the Weberian or Tilian concept of uh, war-making or state-building in these t- two countries. And as Alex mentioned, uh, in 2012, we see the Al-Qaeda and uh, with the amalgamation of MLA, these are rebel separatist groups uh, that started the the, uh, insurgents. But all of a sudden, it rises up, it amalgamated, or it transformed itself into uh, a kind of jihadist movement in Mali. And uh, uh, this led to French intervention uh, in the fight against the Al-Qaeda-affiliated fighters in order to push them out in Mali. But we see unrelenting, uh, unrelenting setbacks in the fight against terrorism in these countries, which really undermine political support for international actors within uh, these regions. And we also see also as a form of uh, donor traffic jam in these areas because the citizens' perceived perceptions about the state and the international actors, like, for example, uh, the, the former colonialist French, as a lame dog and being passive in the fight against the terror terrorists. For example, the French came and formulated a, a, a security reform system called Bakken. But many felt that, many citizens I spoke to felt that this uh, operation they, uh, uh, virtually yielded nothing absolutely because since 2012 to date the country according to some of the political commentators only six, uh, only 40% remained in the in the hands of the state the 60% of the population remained outside the state control state control in the sense that if you are a state employee or if you are a state agent you virtually you cannot go into certain uh, these sixty percent these regions which contains consist of the sixty percent without being guided without being accompanied by the security forces, and this is really frustrating for citizens. And equally, we see the same trend in Burkina. After 2015, after the, the uh, unglorious departure of the uh, the dictator Blaise Campawari in 2014. 
All of a sudden, we see a similar trend in Burkina Faso in 2015. At the beginning, when there was an attack in Capacino in, in Ouagadougou, they thought they were, these people were foreigners. But all of a sudden, this thing generated into a kind of uh, community violence uh, mixed with jihadist uh, movements. And uh, now many people knew that these people are within them and uh, the state couldn't contain and the state couldn't do anything with the, with the, with the, with the, with the, with the, with the coalition they built with the French. So this really make many citizens frustrated and uh, it turned, it translated into grievances and uh, we see a, a, a subsequent coup for which was led by Damiba. And Damiba was also within less than one year. Damiba was also ousted through a coup d'etat by a Captain Ibrahim Trawale. And when Trawale came, many people embraced him as a hero who came to save the, the, the Bukinabe. And uh, at the beginning, when he was, uh, Damiba was pushed out, he wanted to take a refuge in the French embassy. But many, many citizens felt that, well, this cannot be. They all came out through demonstrations. We see videos. Uh, we see a lot of, you know, comments from the public, that, you know, in opposition to Damiba. So this led to the success of the current coup. And uh, currently, what, uh, what we see in Burkina, it seems that, you know, anti-French sentiments is really generating. And uh, the, the Burkina Bay are yet to accept the the Wagner group from Russia, but there is this suspicion that there is a secret meeting and they led a 12-man delegation to, uh, to, to Russia in order to help them to contain the jihadist movement and uh, in order to help, to help them to recruit 50,000 self-defense groups which uh, currently they are trying to recruit. So I want to talk a little bit more about the causes behind these coups, the jihadist situation and the government's, the civilian government's failures uh, to to deal with it are, were in both cases, in Mali and Burkina Faso, the things that were uh, openly cited by the officers who seized control. Um, but there, there are certainly other grievances uh, maybe going on here, and, and to some extent, uh, not just in the military, but as you alluded to, I mean, the, the, these coups have been popular, at least for, at least initially. So there's some local grievances as well. And additionally, sort of as we're talking about what, what goes into these coups, one of the interesting, I think, commonalities here is that both of these countries are on their second coups in a sense. You know, Mali had, Mali's first military coup was in uh, 2020, not not first of all time, but first in the sequence. Uh, happened in 2020, and then in 2021, the same junta uh, kind of got fed up with its own civilian government and overthrew it in a second coup. Uh, as you already mentioned, I mean, in, in Burkina Faso, you had uh, a coup in January 2022, and then uh, a few months later, a second coup against that hunter from another group of military officers. What are what are the 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 grievances that are feeding into this? You know, if if we get past just the the sort of fact of the the jihadist militancy and, and the inability to deal with that, what are some of the other factors uh, that you think are playing into to these things? Uh, uh, okay, thank you so much. And some of the factors uh, I would say is based on socio-economic and socio-political uh, issues, uh, particularly in Burkina uh, when. The, this current coup happened in September 
2022, the citizens who came out, they they can't and the uh, uh, and the, the messages they put out there is that the French, especially the former colonizers, came to impose themselves on them uh, in terms of economic. The citizens were not able to, you know, prosper, and uh, the monetary system is being controlled by the the French. And uh, to summarize it, the French impose themselves, they impose in their uh, interfere into their sovereignty, and uh, that tells a lot on Burkina And uh, they felt that French has a secret motive, an ulterior motive in Burkina, and likewise in Mali. So this is why we see ma- majority of the citizens coming out to oppose the French. They either empre- embrace Russia instead of uh, French. And uh, politically too, the, the state also this uh, they see the many people see the state as a as as a collaborator and who who is a puppet puppet to French. And uh, because many leaders when they come. They only see themselves and uh, they forget the ordinary people. I think this is what is really, in, really generating a lot of grievances against the state and whoever allies with the French. I think I would add to that that the you know in, in both countries and and not just in these two countries, but there's a conversation about the political class, right, and the political class being very stale. Uh, and seeing sort of the same faces come back again and again, you know, into power from from the 90s when there was, you know, the sort of initial democratization up to the present. And the top two candidates in elections, I mean, not just the incumbent, but often the, the leading opposition candidate as well, will be from the same political class. And so I think it bred a lot of sort of cynicism, um, you know, and, and frustration. And then I think respect for militaries has been pretty high. That's shown up in some of the polling data as well that in you know, there's Afrobarometer, which does polls of, of you know, many different African countries and the, the respect for the presidency, you know, the national legislature and so forth, you know, even before the coup was was really low. And then respect for religious leaders and the military was very high. Um, I think also, you know, the, the forces, I mean, Lamine was, was alluding to this, but the, you know, the officers themselves have been very, very frustrated, right? And in Burkina in particular, the coups were preceded, you know, weeks or, or, you know, not too long before by serious attacks where the military and the security forces took a lot of casualties. Um, and this, I think, has bred frustration, you know, first against their own civilian superiors and then even among, you know, with middle ranking officers being frustrated with higher officers in, in their own ranks. Um, so I think that, yeah, I mean, the jihadist insurgency has affected people living obviously where the jihadist violence is, but I think it's also bred a lot of dissatisfaction in, in national capitals as well. Um, and then you see multiple streams of discontent coming together. Uh, and uh, sorry, added to that, what Alex just said, for example, in Burkina, I think that bears a lot of legitimacy towards uh, the religious uh, leaders, religious leaders like the composition of the, the, the Muslims and the Christians. And we saw one reason why Burkina did not uh, plunge into war, a sort of war in the first coup of Damiba, is because of these religious leaders and the second coup, coup too. So because when it happens, the religious leaders like, uh, like the uh, Maronaba, the religious leaders is a traditional head, who, uh, if he speaks, many people listen, listen to him, listen to him. He has that legitimacy to talk to both sides in order to make a, a deal. 
And this is what happened in Burkina when uh, the state virtually lost legitimacy. When there was a coup, he spoke and bring them to, uh, together to, to, to make a deal in order to make a, 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 a composition of a transitional government. And this is what happened in Burkina. Another, uh, I would I would say, uh, commonality here that, that seems to exist under the surface at least, um, and, and we could actually include Guinea in this as well, is the uh, training that these military officers have received from the United States, uh, primarily counterterrorism training. Uh, I know uh, Paul-Henri Damiba, who led the, the January 2022 coup in Burkina Faso, Definitely received multiple went went to multiple U.S. training sessions. Uh, Asimi Goita, the the head of the uh, Malian junta, uh, attended U.S. training sessions. I think the Pentagon said it it, it can't it doesn't know if uh, Ibrahim Traore, who read, led the the second Burkina Bay coup, uh, actually attended any U.S. training sessions. But there there is a a, a linkage here in some way, and I, I I wonder, Alex, I know that you've you've written a lot about the. Uh, what U.S. counterterrorism, the U.S. counterterrorism focus has done uh, to countries in the Sahel and, and sort of, you know, their politics. Um, you know, maybe you could could start us off here. Is there a, a linkage between these officers, you know, getting this training uh, and, uh, you know, then turning around and, and kind of taking that that training or, or you know, something that uh, that comes out of that turning on their their civilian political authorities? Yeah, I think I think there's you know a lot of ways to think about this question. I mean, I think that you know, is the U.S. training officers to do to do coups in West Africa? No, I don't. I don't think so, right? I mean, they you know they they there are a lot of trainings that are at least you know I think they're fairly superficial from what I can tell, but they're about civil military relations, they're about human rights and so forth. Um, so this is definitely not like a, a U.S. policy. I also think one could say that um, that. Any officer, especially at the colonel level, but maybe even at the captain level, you know, would have opportunities to to study or to do trainings in different countries, right? So in a way, it's not surprising that a that a colonel like Goito would have been, you know, would have participated in U.S. training programs. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I think you could say though that the war on terror, which has, you know, West Africa and the Sahel have been a, a significant theater of the war on terror, um, not the main one, obviously, but a significant one that the war on terror atmosphere has sort of glorified and valorized the military officer in a way that, that has contributed indirectly to these coups, right? That, you know, the idea that this is first and foremost a military struggle rather than a political struggle, that, you know, the, the special forces and Goita comes out of the special forces have a particular role to play, um, that this is, again, first and foremost, like a military problem. I think that contributes to these coups, right? Because I think it creates a certain atmosphere. And as you were mentioning earlier, when, you know, the coup makers have come to power, they've done so promising to end insecurity. Their record on that, I mean, Traore hasn't been there for that long, but, you know, Goita and, and his peers, I mean, their record on that is terrible, right? They, they haven't achieved any, you know, progress from what I can tell, Um but the idea of like, okay, now we're going to get down to business because the soldiers are in charge. I think that has been very appealing, you know, to them and then also to, so, you know, to the civilians who support them. And I, I do think the war, I mean, the coups in the region, you know, the, the history of coups in the region predates the war on terror by a lot. But I, I think that there is a certain atmosphere amid the war on terror. Um, 
And I think, too, I think not that many tears were shed in, in Washington or Paris for the departure of some of the civilians who were overthrown. You know, I think Keita in Mali was seen as particularly ineffective. I don't think many tears were shed for, for Kabore either. Um, you know, the U.S. has condemned the coups and so forth, but it has not it has not tried at all, from what I can tell, to reinstate the civilians who were overthrown. And I think that there's also been kind of an outsourcing of U.S. policy to, to France and to ECOWAS. I mean, there's, you know, U.S. and France don't see the region completely similarly, but I think that the U.S. has not, um, the U.S. could have done more to put pressure on the coup makers to, to walk things back or at least to, to accelerate the transitions. Yeah, I, I think, uh, Alex, I agree with you. And uh, I don't think uh, the U.S. training uh, really contributed to this and uh, uh, Damiba, Asimoy Goita, and uh, I, I doubt that of Ibrahim Atrawale, but I know that of uh, Gambia, Yaya Jame was part of the U.S. training. But one thing I know that the U.S. training, what it does is that it opens most of these military leaders there, they uh, it opens up their horizon to see things in different lands. But however, what I understand, theoretically, most of these people military leaders like uh, ranging from colonel captains, they find an opportunity among the loopholes created by the state, the civilian presidents, and they took an opportunity to implement it through coup. And uh, these opportunities, are what what opportunities do they have on the ground? The frustration based on the frustration from the people, civil, uh, civil population, either economics, socioeconomic problems, communal problems, and uh, they took that opportunity to stage coup. And I know, I know we weren't going to talk about Chad too much, so I'll, I'll bring it in only briefly. But I, I think it, it sends a message, right, that, that Washington and Paris are, you know, are fully tolerant of, of the coup that happened there. Um, and I think that, that, you know, the, the coup makers in Mali and Burkina, they know that they're not going to be treated the way that Mohamed Debi has been, has been treated. But I think they know that, that they have some real latitude to to stage coups and to stay in power even for years. The other Western player here is, of course, France. We've mentioned France a few times now. Uh, I mean, you already alluded to to the some of the resentment, uh, particularly in Burkina Faso, that seems to have come out uh, regarding France. There is a colonial legacy here that, in my admittedly layperson's observation, the French government, Stokes, in a sense. I mean, the French government seems to really keep its its kind of hands in the pie or fingers in the pie when it comes to uh, its former colonies in West Africa. Uh, and maybe we could talk, you know, in a little more a little more directly about the role of that legacy and and the kinds of resentments that have built up, and also about what seems to be this movement. Uh, this gravitation away from France, but specifically toward Russia and the Wagner Group, uh, which is a dynamic. And again, I'm going to bring in a country that we're not uh, here to talk about, but also something similar seems to have happened in the Central African Republic. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic? And, and you know, let me, you were, you were there most recently. Maybe you could uh, start us off on this. Uh, okay. So, yeah, uh, I will take an example from French. I know Alex talked a little bit ab- briefly about this. Uh, for example, in Mali, when the military junta uh, came, they accused Ibrahim Abubakar of and his administration for failing to uh, uh, contain the rebellion. And uh, that was 
the beginning we are during ATT ATT's time but during ATT uh, uh, this is uh, Tumani Ture's time in 2012 Tumani Ture uh, many people accused him of being uh, negligence of the military giving them poor arms uh, poor military equipment and putting the military in harm's way that led to the first coup and uh, this coup transformed itself and uh, this coup didn't materialize and didn't get the support of many military military were divided and this uh, paved the way for the jihadist movement to come in and the french came in in 2012 uh, to 2013 and uh, with the notion that they're going to contain the islamic jihadists because in nowhere you can accept the terrorists to form a, a government so so when the french came many people embraced them since they were the colonialists former colonialists who have set up the bureaucratic system in mali and many people hailed them as hero they were able to push away the jihadists tem- uh, tentatively temporarily and uh, all of a sudden the thing doesn't improve and it deteriorated so the french form an operation bagna which is an anti-arm islamic insurgent groups in mali in, in the sahel but typically based in mali but this operation hasn't improved since it started 2014 up to date so many citizens felt this is really uh uh the situation is deteriorating people cannot settle in their their own homes and because of violence from the armed jihadists so what happened is uh is a push towards the state and it's, it's like a contagion effect so this the state also knew that if this is this continues this cannot this, this the masses are going to rebel against them they stage a coup so because the french could not improve the status quo of the security situation in mali and neither burkina the same thing happens in burkina we see the same the same situation in burkina so when the citizens felt the security situation nobody is secured and uh, especially in 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 villages as i am speaking two three days ago that on the 12 and 13 50 women were kidnapped in their village who were gathering food so this really contributed uh it contributed towards the atmosphere the anti-french movement in these countries because if the people are frustrated they feel not they cannot secure their properties are not secured and the state who should protect them no longer can protect them and the state ally is key ally here is french and the united states also is there virtually but they are not as strong as uh the mighty french who provide the surveillance who provide security equipment who train the, 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 this this country's military so the f- citizens felt that uh, a little bit french is complicit in the fight against terrorism in these countries yeah i think i mean just to chime in a little bit i, I think that's all i think that's all really well said I, th- i think that there are you know there are some outright conspiracy theories that circulate in the region right there are people who think you know france actively creates and abets you know insurgencies as as a means of of stealing sahelian resources but then there's also people asking you know legitimate questions that i think any ordinary person would ask you know why if there are this this open ended french deployment why does my own personal security situation not improve right um and i think there was a big disconnect between 
what the French considered accomplishments, you know, basically, and Derek, you and I have talked about this before. I mean, you know, the French would announce that they had killed such and such, you know, jihadist leader who was like famous to the people who followed jihadist movements, but whose disappearance meant, you know, essentially nothing to most ordinary people who then might see their own, again, situation just worsen and worsen. And so I think after a while, I mean, when it just became a kind of open-ended French deployment, um, you know, more and more questions kind of circulated in the minds of ordinary people. I think also, you know, as you were saying in your question, Derek, I mean, I think that the French have sometimes, you know, let's say inadvertently played into the the, the image of themselves as a neo-colonial power, right? In the way that they talk to Sahelians, you know, heads of state and the comments that officials give to, to the news media and so forth, it often sounds very sort of imperious. Um, in 2020, there was a big security summit where Macron basically summoned the Sahelian heads of state to France to kind of publicly, you know, re-endorse the French presence in the region. Um, all of this has a, a pretty neo-colonial optic. Um, yeah. And then, I, you know, the last point I would add is, I mean, again, to go back to like the political class, um, a lot of the senior politicians in the region were educated in France, you know, seem relatively oriented toward France. And, and I think there was a rejection of them, you know, as, as to put it crudely, as, as being perceived as tools of France and as, as you know, agents of neocolonialism. To kind of go a little bit further in the second part of my question, which which has to do with the role of Russia and, and Wagner. I, I know there are theories as to uh, why Wagner seems to be gaining traction in these countries or why Russia seems to be gaining traction through Wagner. It's, they have to do with, uh, you know, Wagner kind of uh, being handed state assets, which raises the possibility of corruption, money changing hands. Um, there's, a, you know, the theory that that the Russians, uh, not I'm not trying to valorize the French or their commitment to human rights or, or you know protecting civilians, but uh, that the Russians maybe don't even nag, uh, you know, in the sense in the sense that France or the United States do, uh, don't even nag these governments about you know kind of maintaining respect for human rights or, or that sort of thing. But uh, as you both have observed uh, this this warming up to, to to Russia and the the presence of Wagner in these countries what what do you see as the uh, the drivers of that I think uh, the drivers towards this uh, I would say the the theory of uh, Robert uh, Gori why do uh, the theory of like why do men rebel so what we see here why do people decided to uh, uh, go in for Wagner Group, which we all know that they have committed horrendous amount of human rights violations in, uh, in the legacy of the countries they've been, for example, in Libya, uh, Central Republic of uh, uh, Central Republic of Africa, South African uh, CAR, and we see them and even in Algeria, even in Sudan. So we all know that Russia are trying to pro- uh, uh, do a form of propaganda in order to say, market their foreign policy. But at the same time, many of these citizens, for example, in Burkina, in the recent coup, the day it happens, you see a group of people who typically, you know, uh, raise banners up saying that, well, 
We are frustrated. We are here since 2015. We don't see any type of improvement, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, the, the, the state, even Ouagadougou itself, is no longer safe. So what are we going to do now? So we go, we turn into Wagner Group, who can protect us. We can, we can turn into Rosco, uh, uh, Mexico. Uh, uh, we can turn into Russia to secure us because we are no longer secured by the mighty French. So in, during this demonstration, we see political commentators with divanas playing videos of the past history of Wagner Group in, the, in, in CAR and Libya, you know, trying to contain the terrorists. So this video really played a kind of a fake information to ordinary people who some of them who doesn't understand the, the security dynamics and the legacy of Wagner. So instead, it generated a kind of atmosphere, a popularity for Wagner Group to be accepted in most of these countries because they believe that they, these people are here without any ulterior motives and they are here without pursuing for the uh, for the resources, uh, the natural resources on the ground, as uh, Alex mentioned. So I think these are one of the fundamental factors why what causes many citizens to rebel and to come out in large numbers to oppose the French group, French military, uh, French military installments in these countries. Instead, they are demanding for Wagner groups to come and, uh, and help them and to become saviors. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really well said. I mean, I would add that I think that there's this goes back maybe a little bit to what I said about the the hunters and their own way that they present themselves. But I think there's been this idea that you know ultimately what's needed in the fight against jihadists is toughness, right? You just need to be very very tough against them, and I think that's been part of the appeal of of you know of Wagner. Let's get some tough guys in there and just start you know killing the jihadists, and that has that has been you know already proven to be. Uh, a failure with Wagner. I mean, all they've done is is commit, you know, human rights violations. They haven't they haven't made any genuine military progress. I think for some ordinary people, I mean, this ties into what Lamine was saying. I think for some ordinary people, it can be just as simple as as giving a middle finger to France, right? Um, some people may be, you know, genuinely attracted to Russia, and there's definitely historical ties in Mali, in particular, with you know Mali and the Soviet Union and so forth. There's people, you know, who speak Russian and so forth. But I think for a lot of ordinary people. Um, it's just about an alternative to to France and and the sense of okay let's let's try something new and let's experiment. I think for the for the Malian junta in particular, it's also been a really useful relationship. You know, as they've as they themselves have given the middle finger to France, as they've defied ECOWAS, the regional bloc. I think they've had relatively few partners. You know, and even some of their own partners are frustrated with them. And so Russia is one of the few kind of friends that they have. Although I don't think it's doing Let's, them any good. I mean, <laughs> I think it's ultimately self-defeating. To be clear, yeah, yeah. there's no evidence. And I, I do want to, uh, you know, maybe in the the last bit of this, we can talk about the state of the, the actual jihadist conflicts. And, and in Mali, it seems quite dire, but I, I'd like to get your takes on that. But I, I do want to ask first about the role that uh, ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, has played. This is sort of the other regional slash international player you know kind of outside actor in in, in these coups um can you t- tell people a little bit about uh, what ECOWAS is and then you know sort of the role that it's played in responding to both of these coups which i know uh you know alex you've written about has been uh trying to basically accommodate them uh more than than roll them back or or uh pressure them even though the the block itself seems to be 
kind of an incumbent's protection racket in some sense. But but you, there's a lot of contradictions in that. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the role that they've played. Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, Akawas created 1975. It's it's don't. I mean, the the name shouldn't mislead, right? Because it's you know, as you were saying, right? It's 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 called the Economic Community of West African States, but it plays a profoundly political role in the region. Um, it has a commitment, just like the African Union, to upholding democratic norms, but it's been accused, I think rightly, of, of being really inconsistent on that. You know, if you look among the member states, some of them are, you know, what one could call the, the leading democracies of the region, right? Ghana and maybe to some extent Senegal, and some of them are, you know, authoritarian or even dynastic you know, states and, and ECOWAS has acquiesced to, you know, extra constitutional third term bids, including the one that that basically precipitated the coup in, in Guinea. Um, and so ECOWAS's own credibility has been a little bit kind of shaky. Yeah, coming into the coups, then they were the the leading diplomatic negotiator, you know, even to some extent representing the, the interests of, of France and the United States in terms of trying to, to negotiate with the juntas to um, to agree to 18-month transition timelines. This is basically the sort of magic number that, that ECOWAS came up with, the idea that you should you should take power or you should hold power for just 18 months, organize elections and so forth. In Mali in particular, that really ran aground as the junta tried to extend their power from 2020 even as far into you know 2026 or something like that. Um, ECOWAS put sanctions on, on Mali for the first half of 2022, trying to pressure the junta. Eventually they compromised um, that the junta will stay in power through 2024. Um, but that was well beyond the original 18 months that, that ECOWAS had originally envisioned, which would have ended already, which would have ended in um, you know February of 2022. So I think ECOWAS has really been proven fairly weak. And I think if a whole other round of, of you know, power struggle over this comes around in 2024, I think it's possible that the Malian junta in particular would would seize more time. And, and I don't know what ECOWAS could or would really do in the face of that. Sanctions didn't really budge the Malian junta that far. Military intervention basically totally off the table. ECOWAS intervened militarily in, in the Gambia in 2017. But um, the Gambia is a very, very small country. The president of the country at that time was widely detested. So Mali or Burkina, very, very different situation. ECOWAS remains engaged through, you know, mediation efforts and so forth. But but I think their power has proven, again, very limited. I, I and I mean, I, I want to get your uh, comment on ECOWAS in, in a moment, but I, uh, we could maybe add to this um, what ECOWAS has done or not done uh, as uh, the Malian junta and Cote d'Ivoire have been, you know, engaged with one another over the arrest of dozens of uh, Ivorian soldiers who were were in Mali ostensibly part of the UN mission but but you know do you do you how do you view that situation in in kind of light of the 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 regional dynamic yeah I mean I can I can take that quickly before passing to Lamine but I, I think that yeah I mean the the Malians you know arrested these 49 soldiers from from Cote d'Ivoire and then this turned into a huge standoff between them and the and the Ivoirian authorities it seems that the Malian junta wanted to use the soldiers to negotiate maybe for the, the return of some exiled Malian politicians. They didn't get that, um, but they kept the soldiers, you know, from, from July through January. It was a real, again, a, a demonstration of ECOWAS's weakness. 
ultimately it was the president of Togo who seems to have negotiated the release of these soldiers and the Malians and the, and, and the president of Togo have been relatively close because he's one of the ECOWAS leaders who favors a kind of softer approach vis-a-vis the junta. But yeah, as you say, I mean, there too, ECOWAS was, was not able to compel, at least not immediately, the, the return of the soldiers. And they were thinking about imposing sanctions again, but then that would have been almost back to where they were in January 2022. Um, so they don't have very many tools to use against, against the Malian junta. Okay, thank you, uh, Alex. And ECOWAS, as uh, Alex said, is co- uh, composed of 15 member countries in West Africa. And uh, they play into more of a political role in West Africa. For example, he cited uh, the case of Ivory Coast and uh, the case of Guinea, the case of uh, Alpha Conde. When Alpha Conde came, <clears throat> he has been there for decades and he refused to go despite the constitutional measures uh, uh, of two term limits and he defies that and, uh, and vie for uh, the third term. And uh, we saw the same trend in the Every course, when Watra, you know, defied the second term and went in for the, the, the third term. And there was this agreement among the ECOWAS members, uh, especially the president of Guinea-Bissau. He said, uh, he told the members that, well, we're talking about, uh, coup against, uh, we are against coup in West Africa, but tentatively we are creating another coup. If, why can't we condemn the, the actions that happened in Guinea and that happened in Ivory Coast. But uh, this wasn't taken seriously. And uh, ECOWAS one time has been hailed as being heroes. For example, the role they play in, in the Gambia in 2016 when there was political impasse. And they mediated and the mediation failed, but they sent the military, they, all of a sudden, the Yaya Jamme, the former president, decided to uh, give, gave up and went into exile. So they were given a round of applause in this case. But when you come to Mali and other cases, I think many people felt that they are still false out, uh in their roles, uh, especially to form a formidable force in order to mediate against scoop in, in order to uh, impose sanctions. For example, Mali, they impose, uh, temporarily impose sanctions but if you look at critically looking at that sanction, you see certain countries who are not comp- uh, uh, cooperating. Uh, implementing a sanction and enforcement is quite different. Enforcement and accept a compliance is, is two different, do two different things. So when they uh, sanctioned Mali uh, for trade and other activities, nothing can come in. But you have certain countries, for example, the Gambia. The Malian government were getting their fuel through Gambia. Senegal made an, uh, a barrier and, and sanctioned them to not uh, anything could, from Senegal would not enter through Mali. But you have other countries which are not completing. I think this really make the work of Equus uh, uh, tremendously difficult. And now what we are seeing uh, predicting in the case of Senegal, another 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 issue in Senegal is uh, Mark Salah is trying to push for the third term, and uh, he is one of the heads leading figures in ECOWAS. He is playing a key role, but people leaders like Mark Salah, if he is coming out and defying the second term for the third term, and the ECOWAS still is mute in that aspect, so that really 
tells a lot to these ordinary citizens in these countries uh, in terms of questioning the credibility of ECOWAS. So I've got a question um, that's related more to um, U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and so I hope you don't mind my asking it, but how does what's going on shaped the United States' approach to the region? Have you seen any shifts in the last few years? And, 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 and in what ways has um, U.S. foreign policy been refigured? Has it not been refigured? Has everything been the same in the last 20 years? Yeah, I can I can take this first. I mean, I think the I think one of the biggest, you know, events was the was the 2017 ambush that killed the four American soldiers in Tongo, Tongo, Niger. I think that that raised a lot of questions, um, you know, about the relationship between the military and Congress, um, whether Congress was being properly notified of American deployments overseas, um, whether Congress was even in a position to understand when they were notified, right? Because there's there's military jargon, there's the issue of, you know, congressional staffers being briefed um, and how much bandwidth they really have and how much bandwidth actual members of Congress have to understand what's going on. So, you know, the, the deaths of American soldiers in a place that a lot of Americans hadn't heard of, um, I think really surprised people. I don't know, though, that that moment really produced kind of lasting change in how things work right so there was um there was a rolling stone article last year there was a nice piece in um harper's by by caitlin chandler about niger right next door to both mali and burkina uh and american training activities and military activities there um i think that there's a fair amount of continuity in the region from even 2002 with the first creation of a real counterterrorism program post 9 11 up up through the present in terms of you know, the U.S. treating um, the Sahel again as this maybe like, you know, tertiary theater of the war on terror, maintaining a quote unquote light footprint, but being kind of, you know, consistently involved in sort of opaque ways. I guess the other difference recently has been the, the role of Russia, right? And the the sense of Africa and the Sahel as part of that as this theater of, of geopolitical competition. And now, for example, U.S. Africa Command in its statements will emphasize both sort of counter jihadism and the kind of, you know, counter Russia, counter China activities. AFRICOM will try to make, in my mind, a pretty awkward connection between those and say, you know, we can do all this at once. It, it, it all reinforces one another. If we offer ourselves as security partners um, to African states, you know, we'll, we'll outcompete Russia and China. I think, though, you know, there's been basically status quo a lot of the time in terms of the policy. And then in terms of the rhetoric, there's been just a lot of lecturing African governments about Russia and China and saying sort of the U.S. offers a better deal, but without necessarily, I think, proving that. China, I think often, you know, the, the stereotype of China and Africa is offering, you know, essentially a transactional relationship. I think there's a lot to that. And I think that there has that has been a fairly successful approach, more successful, I think, than the U.S. sort of um, security plus lecturing approach. Russia, I think, you know, their current forays may may prove to be unstable because eventually, I think it's not going to seem that attractive just to have a bunch of Russian mercenaries killing people in one's country. But this is a huge concern in in Washington, and I think there's a sense to the extent that American policymakers pay attention to Africa at all, which I think is very very little, right? I mean, maybe even you know less than ten percent of the time at the senior level. But I think that there is, when they think about Africa, I think there's some real alarm and alarmism about about Russia. And that alarmism uh, 
is focused on just general great power competition, winning the global South to whatever side is that basically it there. And essentially it's viewed Africa in, in, in this regard is viewed as an object in effect. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think that, you know, and I think that that also plays badly, right? Because I think African governments, African citizens are aware that they're being talked about more as like sort of a, a theater of competition than actually a, a place with, you know, with real people. You know, I guess one wrinkle or one additional element is there's a lot of talk about disinformation, you know, in a sense that this, you know, that Africa is a key battleground, not just for sort of tangible influence, but also for virtual influence. And and I think there's a lot of thinking about, you know, the U.S. competing with Russia in the realm of, of propaganda and information and disinformation. Um, but again, I think, as you say, that's treating Africa more as an, as an object in a theater than as like a place unto itself. I think U.S. foreign policy in the Sahel currently is really important uh, in the sense that when the intervention of Rosia made U.S. foreign policy to rethink about strategies, better diplomacy, and war on strategy, uh, war on terror. When I was in Burkina, for example, we had a meeting with the U.S. Amb- ambassador, and. Uh, the U.S. ambassador stated that they caught the Millennium Phone for Burkina because of the military coup. But uh, some people, among them myself, and I ask her, well, don't you think this is a good strategy? You, do, do you think this is a good strategy in terms of U.S. foreign policy? Uh, because it came at a time when the citizens were uh, frustrated and economic situation is so bad here. So the response to that is that uh, that is part of UN foreign policy, but they are trying to revisit uh, this type, this kind of approach towards certain uh, uh, volatile areas uh, in order to change the dynamic. But she mentioned to me that the foreign policy still remains the same in terms of military support stood, uh, on the ground. But theoretically, if you look at the dynamic on the ground, for example, an, a, a case example is uh, Mali. Why other foreign agents, military uh, apparatus are parking up? And uh, is it due to fear? Uh, is it due to uh, other aspects we didn't know, uncertainties on the ground when the Wagner Group came in and started training Malian soldiers? And currently, as we have in Burkina, where they recruited the self-defense group called the VDP, there are 50,000 people are being recruited, recruited now. So, and uh, these 50,000 people uh, are suspected that they're going to be trained by the Wagner Group. So is this uh, consistent with the foreign policy if, of the United States? But I think uh, the future will tell uh, the, the position of the U.S. Uh, foreign policy in these countries. But uh, theoretically, I think it's better for the United States to implement a strategy in terms of better diplomatic uh, cooperation with these countries and in terms of the war against terror. If I could jump in just for, I think think there's a really acute dilemma that that Lamine has pointed to, right? Because there's the the ostensible U.S. commitment to democratic norms, 
right? And then there's the then there's the the appeal of remaining engaged, both for counterterrorism or for other interests, right? Um, and the the coups and and the juntas that seem not to be going anywhere, they they pose that dilemma, you know, profoundly for the U.S. So I I regret kind of saving this to the the last question, but uh, you know we would be remiss not to but at least talk are. about. <laughs> yeah, here we are. Uh, we'd be remiss not to at least talk about the the state of the jihadist conflict in in both of these countries. Really, Sahel wide uh, right now. Um, we I, 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 we don't have time to get into the sort of meat of the the kind of or roots of this conflict. And and uh, you know, if you guys are amenable, we we'd love to to do that in a future episode or or more than one episode, maybe. But can you talk a little bit just about your impressions? And Lamine, I know you were you were just there in the region, so. Uh, you know, particularly uh, your impressions of where things stand. I know, you know, we're you know, in Mali. The situation seems fairly concerning. JNIM is, is you know, in threatening to surround the capital, Bamako. Uh, they're operating in parts of the country almost with impunity that are, you know, uh, where they haven't been able to go in the past. Um, but also in Burkina Faso, we've seen the jihadist violence spread kind of metastasized from the north where it was clearly kind of spilling over from Mali all the way through the country and now starting to move into Benin, Togo, you know, sort of the coastal states uh, to the south. Um, also in Niger, obviously, this is a, a continuing problem. But what, as you kind of look at things right now, what are the the, the things that are most uh, concerning uh, to you? Yeah, the most concerning thing uh, about this uh, issue about armed jihadist movement in particularly in Mali. Uh, we, saw, we saw a situation where the dynamic is really convoluted. You don't know where, where, with what the future will hold because when the military came, uh, Goita came in 2020 and uh, Impose a civilian government and overthrow that civilian government and impose himself as the superman. Uh, I'm sorry for the language. Uh, who came to eradicate the, the jihadists. And uh, he embraced the Russians, the Wagner group. And uh, this Wagner group has committed a lot of human rights violations, especially in the north and the central region of Mopti. But as of recent, we see an attack as close to Bambako as uh, Segu. Segu and uh, the Segu is very close to the capital. And uh, beside that, we see an attack from the military camp where the Goita himself took power from. And these attacks are being committed by the, these jihadists. But despite that, the citizens whom I talk to are really still patriotic. Majority of them are still, they still want the military to be there because they, th- they thought the civilian government have previously failed them as Alex previously mentioned because they lose hope on this, the state. The, the governing co- capacity of the state couldn't do nothing, but still we see a trend where the situation is deteriorating a day by day. And we see a similar trend in Burkina. Burkina is yet to embrace the Wagner group. Uh, outwardly, inwardly, we didn't know what is happening on the ground, but the, most of the assistant diplomatic, diplomats I spoke to, they, they told me, well, I don't think they, 
Burkina would definitely tilt towards the, that direction of leaning towards and abandoning France and embracing Fr- uh, Russia. So the situation is really confusing, but in my own predictions, I believe uh, there could be a pragmatic way of uh, uh, getting out of this situation diplomatically and uh, uh, through negotiations and uh, not war can win this game, uh, according to the theories I, I read. And uh, war, war, war uh, has been going on for centuries, but without mediation among these communities and among these religious leaders involving local people, it's going to be really difficult to handle the situation through war. Yeah, I don't have much to add. I, I think that, I think, you know, national capitals are unlikely to, to fall straight out, you know, right? I, I don't think that Bamako will be like overrun by Jenim, but I think there could be this kind of process where Bamako turns more and more into a, a kind of an enclave, right? Including one that's hit repeatedly by, by terrorist attacks, right? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the situation is really, really bad. I think there's a danger in the coastal countries, maybe particularly in, in Benin and Togo, um, of governments repeating the exact same mistakes that were made elsewhere, you know, cracking down really, really hard, you know, on whole communities and flaming the situation through collective punishment and then getting into a cycle. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot more that could be said. But yeah, I think the situation is really, really grim. And I agree with Amin that I think that negotiations ultimately are, are the way out. Unfortunately, I think the military, you know, authorities have been really inconsistent and scattered when it comes to that question. And in Mali, I think they've even made things worse by bringing in Wagner, which I think forecloses a bit some of the possibility for negotiations. But I, eventually, yeah, I don't see any other way because, I mean, you know, so many actors now have tried to defeat the jihadists militarily, and I don't think it's going to happen. Lamin Keita, uh, Alex Thurston. Uh, I should add, uh, in addition to Alex's books, if you want to check out his writing, he has a great blog, Sahel blog, uh, Sahel blog, all one word, dot wordpress.com. He's also at Responsible Statecraft. Uh, and a little newsletter called Foreign Exchanges that you might want to check out. But on that note, I want to thank both of you for for coming on the program. And again, um, you know, we'd uh, we'd be very pleased to have you back to to talk in more detail about the the jihadist situation and and where that's. Oh, and and Lamine also has a blog, uh, AfroShaharo.org. We'll put all links to all of this stuff in the show description, so don't worry about that. So again, thank you both for coming on the program, and uh, and uh, yeah, maybe we can can do this again soon. Thank you for having us. Okay, really thank you. Thank you.